0: Thanks, John. Good morning, everyone. Great to be back. Not everyone's face I recognise, but if you haven't met, my name is Andy Savile, the vicar down the road at the Church of England All Saints Laylam, so one of the churches we're partnering with in uh, our Passion for Life mission. Well, it's always a delight to uh, to come back to Stainscog. Thank you for uh, having me. You're part of our regular pulpit swap that's now kind of become a bit of a tradition at the start of each year. Uh, I just love, I'm so grateful to God for our partnership together. Uh, It's so encouraging. There's so much more we can do together than uh, we can do separately. Uh, It's founded uh, on that common commitment to, well, I was about, I had in my notes, God's infallible word. But I think we just had uh, the the great um, uh, language, uh, as Margaret replied, I do to, is, is the Bible God's sufficient and authoritative word? Yes. Hallelujah. Um, well, if you were here last week, you will know that we're, we've got this short series looking at parables in Luke's Gospel. But it's a series with a bit of a twist. And the twist is that each week we're going to be focusing on a particular generation. If I can have the slide on the screen, you may be aware that uh, people are. Uh, for sort of research purposes, are often divided up into different age bands, different generations. So there's boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, millenni- or, or Millennials, Generation Z. Uh, if you're here last week, you would have heard Nick uh, on the oldest generation. Uh, the the w- wording's uh, so tiny, you won't better read it or you're regretting uh, sitting at the back. Um, at the top, it lists some of the formative events. So this week, we're focusing on Generation X. Uh, so, if you're a Generation Xer, born between roughly 1961 and 1980, some of the big formative events, things like the fall of the Berlin Wall, Thatcherism, Live Aid. Any Generation Xers here? Okay, few of us. Great, good stuff. Um, now, of course, every passage of Scripture will have something to say to every generation. Uh, whatever our differences in age uh, and outlook. But these differences between the generations can easily, I think, cause misunderstanding and disagreement. In 2020, there was a BBC radio series called OK Boomer, which was introduced with these words. From how we vote to how we think about issues like gay marriage and climate change the generation gap seems bigger than ever before. In the Brexit referendum, over 65s were twice as likely as under 25s to vote leave. And in the 2019 December election, age appeared to be a huge predictor of how we'd vote. So who are the players in this generational battle? Well, they're kind of setting it up as a bit of a conflict to get, uh, get us to listen to the series. Uh, some of you will know a great deal more about these uh, different generations and their differences than, than I do. Uh, for some of you, this will be completely new. Well, don't worry. Um, one of the leading writers in this area is an American called Gene Twenge. And uh, here's a little snippet of an interview from last year in which she explores some of the key differences that sort of uh, mark us out uh, by our generations. Just uh, three minutes or so.
1: Factors that shape various generations. I know there was a theory for some time that big world events often shape generations. For example, like the Vietnam War for baby boomers or 9-11 for millennials or COVID and the pandemic for Gen Z. Tell me about that theory and if that still holds. So that is the traditional
2: theory, that major events have the biggest impact on generations. So not just the event, but how old you are when you experience it. And that does have some effect on people. But what has a bigger effect on day-to-day life, especially long-term, is technology. So it's technology that makes what living now so completely different from what it was like to live 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 20, years ago. And when I say technology, of course, I'm including the internet and smartphones and social media. But it goes beyond that to things like airplanes and air conditioning and better uh, medical care and labor-saving devices like washing machines. That's always the one I came back to when I was writing the book and thinking, you know, if I had been a woman in the 1800s instead of now, how my life would be completely unrecognizable and mostly because of technology. All of these technologies just have these downstream effects whether that's on how we spend our time They can also have an influence on our attitudes and our values and our life course so that was the other thing that i explored was that you have more technology you generally have more individualism so more focus on the self and less on others and this system where you have a lot of um, emphasis on equality for example and then you also get the life course slowing down from infancy to old age, that kids are less independent, and teenagers uh, are not as likely to get their driver's license, or to have a paid job, or to go out on dates. Young adults take longer to marry and have kids and settle into careers, and then later in life, People who are middle-aged and older look at themselves and think, man, I look and act so much younger than my parents or my grandparents did at the same age. And when people talk about you know, 60 is the new 50, it, it really is true. They've actually looked at this in medical studies. Aging markers are lower now in 60-year-olds than they were uh, 30 years ago. And this is because we live longer. So we take longer at each stage of the life class, uh, life course
1: you hear a lot of conversation and there's a lot of tension about that in workplaces, I think all across the country. Can you talk about that and the whole notion of the entitled millennial and now trying to figure out Gen Z and why there's so much conflict it seems?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think generation gaps right now are larger than they've been since the late 60s. There, It's partially around different communication streams that you know you have the boomer wants to see you face to face the gen xer wants to email you the millennial wants to text you and gen z wants to send you a TikTok video of course <laughs> it's very generalized and it's not completely true but we do have these gaps now and there there is you know you know a lot of discussion in these things um and also around free speech and cancel culture it's another thing where there's a pretty pretty big generational break often with boomers and gen xers on one side a millennial, Gen Z on the other a lot of corporate conflict so over the last uh, five to ten years that's the way that they that they have broken
1: let's talk about the factors that shape various generations
0: okay well there is a lot more where that came from just a little flavor uh, to introduce or reintroduce the idea of the generation so I'm generation x I was born in 1966 I'm very comfortable sending emails uh, you won't be receiving a TikTok video from me but I might get one from my kids. Uh, A blog post I read in preparation uh, for this sermon by a fellow Generation Xer, a man called Simon Stevenson, rang a lot of bells with me. We are the bridge between the analogue boomers and the digital millennials. We were the last teenagers to have to remember the home phone number of friends. Probably more than any other generation, our music collection is spread across multiple formats. We remember when vinyl was cool the first time. Uh, But more than anything, we are the generation of... What would you fill in here? Cassette tapes. It is probably the best single identifier of a Generation X of the question, did you create mix tapes? Okay, some of us are nodding. If you've no idea what a mixtape is, find someone a bit older than you and ask uh, later, or someone quite a lot younger than you. Uh, I did for my wife. She still got them uh, when we were courting. Uh, Now, of course, uh, these are only generalisations, and none of us will fully fit the stereotypes, but they do seem to pick up on some significant differences. And uh, these differences can uh, impact on our characteristic strengths and characteristic weaknesses, or in biblical terms... Uh, the idols we are most tempted to worship, the elements of the gospel that are most likely to appeal to us, what we most appreciate and struggle with in our church. Back to that blog by Simon Stevenson. There is a lot to be proud of being a member of Generation X, but there is a dark underbelly here. We've always been suspicious of grand ideas, We've seen the consequences when they don't work. We've always had a libertarian streak. We've always valued individual freedoms, epitomised by the hedonistic culture we embraced in our 20s. We were and continue to be cynical about the ability to make wholesale change. We spent our teenage years at shopping malls. We listened to Michael Jackson, Wham!, Prince and Madonna. We grew up with MTV... We may have rebelled, but we commercialised our own rebellion. Well, that is an introduction to our Bible reading this morning when we hear the story of a young man, or a man rather, who rebelled, who embraced a hedonistic culture, but discovered that his cynicism about change was wonderfully wrong. With that, Luke 15.
3: Well, I must admit, I'm generation, silent generation, which I'm not sure what it means because I've never been silent in my life. <laughs> Read the parable of the lost son. <clears throat> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. to celebrate. Blessed be the name of the Lord.
0: Well, it is one of the most famous uh, stories ever told. Two brothers, very different in terms of our series. I guess we could see them as uh, representatives of different generations. We're going to focus in on the younger brother this morning, who's perhaps closer to a Generation Xer. Now, do you notice we're not told his age? I realise, again, in preparation for this, I think I'd always assumed that he was a young man, uh, uh, but actually we're not told uh, how old he was, just that he was the younger son. Uh, and his older brother says that he's been working for his father for years. So it's possible that he could, we could imagine him as a Generation Xer, now in middle age, and that this is more of a midlife crisis than a youthful rebellion. But there will be something for all of us uh, in this portrait, and Jesus uses it to characterise a group of people, but a group who are characterised not by age, but by attitude. They're mentioned up in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So these two groups, and in terms of the parable, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're characterised, pictured by the older brother. Tax collectors and sinners, they're characterised by the younger brother. And what is it that characterises tax collectors and sinners? Well, sinners are not necessarily people we would think of as bad people. They might have been very respectable, even nice people. They're called sinners because they don't follow God's laws in the Bible. In modern terms, we might say that they reject uh, any divine authority imposed on them. They live by their own rules as they see fit, which, of course, would characterise loads of people today, and certainly many Generation X's. Well, the story begins with the younger son asking for his share of his father's Inheritance. Uh, According to uh, the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 21, inheritance is distributed equally between all the sons, with one exception, the elder son, oldest son, receives a double portion. So here, with the father having two sons, the younger would inherit one-third of the estate, because the elder would inherit twice that, two-thirds. But even that one-third, that is still a very sizable amount. Now, I'd like you to imagine uh, for a moment, uh, if you've still got your parents alive, how would they react if you contacted them late today and said, I'd like all my inheritance now, please? Depending on your age, you might phone them, email them, text them, or send them a TikTok video. Um, on the other hand, if your children, uh, if you've got children, what if they asked you Sent you that TikTok video and said, uh, we'd like our inheritance now, please. Well, what, what would that involve? Perhaps it might involve downsizing the house to release the capital, cashing in the pension pot. I mean, it would be hugely disruptive. Big impact on our quality of life, future security. More than that, when? When do we usually get our inheritance? when our parents die. So do you see what the younger son is in effect saying to his father? I wish you were dead, so that I can get on with living my life my way. And in terms of the parable, it's as though someone were wishing God were dead, that we could have all the benefits from him, but live as though he wasn't there. Now that is quite a shocking thought. Uh, I'm not sure many people would think in terms of wishing God were dead, but of course many people live as if God wasn't there most of the time, as if he were dead while wanting to enjoy all the benefits that he gives. And the Bible's word for this, for doing our own thing, for ignoring God, is sin. And that is just the word that the younger son later confesses he's done. Now, I wonder what you would do with a a good-size inheritance. Uh, Let's imagine, what, a few hundred thousand pounds? What would you buy? Where would you go? Perhaps that dream home in a warmer climate. Well, we read what the young man, younger man, uh, younger son, rather, uh, does. He emigrates and starts having a good time. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Some other translations put that in debauchery, excess, dissipation, reckless living. Uh, The English word prodigal, uh, which is the kind of traditional title for this parable, literally means to spend money wastefully or extravagantly. Two years ago, the Telegraph newspaper ran an article entitled How did Generation X become the unhealthiest of them all? And then the subheading was this. Who'd have thought we former hedonists would end up fat and miserable with heart, back and chronic drinking issues. Here's just a couple of uh, sentences from the article to give you the flavour. Despite being ignored, battered... It's kind of looking back to the fact that most of us knew corporal punishment uh, when we were at school. Despite being ignored, battered and fed horrible food, we grew up to have a great appetite for fun. Good time all the time as the spinal tap drummer used to say was his motto. Our parents and grandparents always told us, you can't have it all, but exes of all classes gave it a go. One thing that characterised our culture was the all-or-nothing way, applied to every aspect of our lives. We worked long hours, then got, as the vernacular goes, absolutely battered. Or as our passage puts it, wild living. Uh, If you notice down in verse 30, uh, his older brother says that he has squandered his money with prostitutes. Although I think that's probably just a guess uh, on his part. Now, one of the problems uh, some of us can have at this point is that this can initially sound rather attractive. Perhaps as we look at the glamorous, seemingly untroubled lives of celebrities perhaps close to home, some of our better-off friends and colleagues, we can be just a little jealous of their wild living. But as they uh, used to say on the recently-ended TV series Question of Sport, and as a Generation Xer, I remember the captains, Gareth Edwards and Emlyn Hughes, Again, if you've no idea who those famous sports people are, are someone older or a Generation Xer like me. Uh, they had this uh, uh, round in the uh, question sport quiz, what happened next? What happened next? Well, for this young man, we read what happened next in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he squandered his inheritance, there's nothing left in the bank, not even anything he can sell on eBay. At the very moment, the country is hit by a sharp economic downturn, caused by a natural disaster. It's a real double whammy, no surprise, he began to be in need. But in a way that I actually find rather impressive, he is is pretty determined and resilient He's not going to give up on his independence or his self-belief easily. Now, us Generation Xers will uh, probably remember a politician in Mrs. Thatcher's cabinet called Norman Tebbit. Norman Tebbit. Anyone remember him? Yeah, quite a few. Who told unemployed people to get on their bike to look for work. Well... Here's someone who Norman Tebbitt would approve of. He's prepared to take any work he can find, however grim and poorly paid. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So his need only deepens. He's without food He's without friends. No one's going to give him anything. He's without dignity. As you're probably aware of. feeding pigs. Well, I mean, it's not a job many of us would uh, probably uh, have it uh, high up on our list. But for a Jew, these were unclean animals, and so culturally, it had been a pretty degrading, humiliating job. Now, at this point, if we stop and review. How do we view this man? How do we react to him and the predicament he finds himself in? Well, we may think it's pretty unfortunate, but perhaps we think, Crumbs, he's someone who's brought it on himself. He's been pretty foolish. Uh, He's probably ended up where he deserves. He may not be someone, actually, we would have a lot of sympathy for. Someone who has messed up, quite so badly. And also we might think he is someone who is quite a long way from our present situation. Now it may well be that we don't feel especially comfortably off, our mortgage repayments uh, are higher than we'd want, uh, the, uh, our pension isn't quite as large as we might have hoped for, we spend more really than we should on Amazon, but we're quite a few steps away from the sort of financial disaster of uh, of this man, at least God willing. But I think Jesus tells the story in part because he wants us to reflect on the trajectory of our lives, on the dangers of living independently of God. That ultimately, we will begin to be in need in a distant country, far from home. As we heard earlier, we are designed by God for relationship with God. And to live without reference to God and reliance on him is to live in a way that's fundamentally unnatural. Many of us have become uh, aware of this Uh, say, in the area of nutrition. Uh, We can fill our bodies with highly processed foods. They taste great. We love to eat them. But they carry a cost. We will pay in the end. And the end of sin is that we will lose everything. Notice the father's striking words in uh, verse 24. He says that when his son was away on his own, he was lost and dead. Ultimately, a description of hell. And while for most of us, that sense of need may not be primarily material, it may well be psychologically and our sense of well-being and contentment, that we find ourselves in a distant country, not where we thought we'd end up, not where we want to be, not where we belong. Perhaps the most celebrated writer on Generation X is the Canadian novelist Douglas Copeland. And in the final chapter of his book, Life After God... He has his Generation X narrator, called Scout, summarise his life. And it's a life that is materially fairly comfortable, but there is a deep sense of loss. He writes this, Life was charmed, life was charmed, it was good, but without politics or religion, it was life after God a life of earthly salvation. Perhaps this is the finest thing to which we may aspire, the life of peace. And yet, I find myself speaking these words with a sense of doubt. I think there was a trade-off somewhere along the line. I think the price we paid for our golden life was an inability to fully believe in love. Instead, we gained an irony that scorched everything it touched. And I wonder if this irony is the price we paid for the loss of God. And this nagging sense of his lostness leads him on a search for for connection. And uh, he goes out into the wilderness, Canadian wilderness, and uh, he's lying at the very end of the book, uh, floating in a lake, and uh, famously... The novel ends with these words. Now, here is my secret. Here's the Generation Xer. Here is my secret. I tell it to you with the openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give, because I no longer seem to be capable of giving. To help me be kind, as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love, as I seem beyond being able to love. Well, what was the younger son's reaction? We read in verse 17 that he came He could have stuck with his pride and refused to ask for help. He could have blamed the weather which had brought the famine or the locals who refused to help him or God for not performing a miracle. But instead, he recognises that he has sinned and he gets up and goes back to his father. He faces (laughs) up to the situation and his responsibility for it. And no doubt, too, he would have faced mockery from whatever old friends he had. It's never nice being thought of as a failure. But he realises this is the only sensible option, although not an easy one. He came to his senses. He realises he deserves nothing. All he can do is ask for mercy, forgiveness, undeserved kindness. So he says to his father, I have sinned against heaven. And against you. And now comes perhaps the most wonderful part of the story. Uh, Really, I think one of the most amazing and wonderful parts of the whole of the Bible. The Father's response. I think it's something we would never have dared imagine of God unless Jesus had told us this. And this is wonderful good news, not just for Generation X's. Uh, but for all of us who are like that younger son in every generation. I was thinking, how would it feel if you were that father? Uh, Your younger son has shown the utmost contempt and indifference towards you, perhaps now for many years. I think Jesus' hearers were probably expecting that the father would have sent him packing. And in a sense, that's probably what he deserved. It's what we deserve. But instead, we read these quite incredible words. Dare we have imagined this? Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, he's got his little prepared speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus is teaching us about God's reaction to us as we turn back to him, as we come home. And his reaction is not that of disappointment and irritation and ticking off, but of welcome, delight and celebration of you. Utterly undeserved. Music, dancing, a feast. Of course, the son would have had to have started obeying his father again, not just doing his own thing. If we come back to God, we need to do the same. But to do so is now a joy. And infinitely better than trying to live without God. God. So faced with this, what is our response? Someone who was too old to be a Generation exer, but he gets the contrast well, C.S. Lewis. We are half-baked creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. Let us come home to God. I'm going to leave a few moments of quiet. Many of us will be believers. We are beloved children, but in our hearts there are many ways we drift from God. Perhaps some here this morning have never Truly turned to God and given up our foolish independence. Wherever we are, let us come home to God. Who is looking out for us. Is filled with compassion for us. And as we turn to him, runs to us. Embraces us and celebrates. We come home to you, Amen.